Que pasa, Mufasa? Ni hao. Salam alaikum. Welcome, everybody. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Today, we've got technologist, angel investor, artist, and advocate for the emerging mental health therapies, including legal, medical, psychedelics, Rod Siraj. So I want to broaden the set of lived experiences in this space and what stories get told. We need more people in this space. You cannot have an ecosystem if you don't mobilize people and different kinds of people from around the world. As always, thanks for listening. It's a pleasure to host this podcast for you. Let's get down to business. Okay, Pasa Mufasa, Rod Siraj of the Minority Trip Report Podcast and Mission Club. Welcome to the Micropreneur Podcast. How are things in Toronto today, Rod? Fantastic, Dennis. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of you and the work you're doing and, of course, the satire. I'm sure we're going to talk about that, but uh, pleasure to be here. It is dark and dreary in Toronto, very seasonal as it's supposed to be. Not happy to be back from Miami, but I heard we escaped a hurricane as well. So, you know, life's okay. Sure, man. Well, the feeling is mutual. I'm a fan of yours. And uh, Loki, your panel at Wonderland was easily one of my favorites. And you're such an eloquent and gifted communicator and also talking about such important issues, which we're going to dive into shortly. But let's start with that is how was your experience at Wonderland? I believe it's the second time that you've been there. And what are some of your takeaways from that event? Thanks, Dennis. Well, I just want to quickly acknowledge your comment. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's, I don't often feel like I'm eloquent on stage, but that's really good to hear, so I appreciate it. Uh, my reflections from Wonderland. Uh, there's a couple of uh, reflections that I can just quickly throw out. Is One is, I think, on one hand, it was a bigger event this year, and I work very closely with Microdose and the, you know, the founders and the organizers, and they're uh, great people. It was a bigger event, but they had a smaller team, so you might have noticed that it was a little rougher on the edges. But overall, I think it was a fantastic conference. The key difference from last year is that I think some of the irrational exuberance that we saw from last year, money being thrown around and just people saying, psychedelics will save the world and heal everything and change everything. I think that sort of come down a bit and people are a lot more pragmatic and, uh, and practical and also much more open to the, the complexity that we have in this space and the conversation that and the work ahead of us. So I really enjoyed that. Of course, you know, it's a space coming out of hibernation and coming over ground. So there's challenges and complexity with that. But overall, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I had a bigger profile of three panels this year, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, lots of people that I learned from. I met you in person, you know, and it's drawing out some really interesting folks. Overall, I really enjoyed it, and I hope to be there every year as long as it goes. I couldn't agree more with you. It was my first year and it was really the opportunity to have face-to-face conversations with people like yourself, right? To network, to connect directly. That is so valuable in my opinion. And let's dive into some of the talking points that you brought up on your panel, which forgive me, I don't actually remember the name of the panel. I just remember that you crushed it, but you talked quite a bit about the need for more diversity and who we're funding. You know, we've got these VC funds that are coming into the space and there's a number of founders and entrepreneurs entrepreneurs who are actively seeking seed capital. And I believe one of the metrics that was thrown out is that something like 0.04% of this VC money finds its way to black women in the space. And, you know, a very insignificant percentage is going to the BIPOC community and to people of the global South, et cetera. Let's talk about the U.S., Euro, and Anglo-centricity of the psychedelics industry, which I think is sort of an elephant in the room. It's like it's been acknowledged, but, you know, as more money is pouring into the space, there's obviously a, a global movement going on here. So what are some some tangible things from your perspective that can be done about 
creating more diversity in a meaningful way, not in a tokenized way, but in a, a meaningful, supportive way to help a lot of these entrepreneurs and you know people in the space who are actively looking for that opportunity and who may have you know tremendous track record, tremendous potential. How can we build those bridges and connect those gaps in a tangible way beyond just talking about it? I think it's a fantastic question. So just, uh, I think the 0.04% was a number that Nancy Fleshner, I think is her last, how you say her last name, I, God, I hope I'm not butchering it. But Nancy, who is a partner at Alumni Ventures, which is one of the most active funds in the US, they're basically an alumni network from Duke University. She's the one who mentioned that. So, you know, and it was a response to a statistic that I read, which is, you know, black women are six times more likely to start a business in the US. And then, of course, the amount of money they get and the funding they get is minuscule. 2% of all VC, on average, annually, goes to women-led founders. And so, ev you know, and, and it's a minuscule proportion of that that goes to people of color, and of course, black women are even a smaller percentage of that. So it's very important to understand that you, know, you might have the best idea in the world, but if you don't get capital, and I don't mean just VC, any kind of capital early on that gives you a competitive advantage, that gives you uh, the, the capital runway to hire the best people, to hire the talent you need to grow your business, to, to, to bring the people and to build the business, it's really important. So if early on, if you're not getting access to capital, then you have a very little chance of making it. 95% of all startups fail anyway. So even if you were funded, it's a, it's a very hard battle. So, you know, so that's number one. And then secondly, there's this framework that I really, um, you know, that really kind of blows my mind that I sort of look at the entire world from this framework, which is sort of the extended mind theory or theory of extended mind which is essentially saying, and this is by David Chalmers, who wrote, you know, talked about the hard problem consciousness almost like two decades ago. And, and, and the idea is that everything in this world is an extension of the mind. If so from that perspective, a pencil is an extension of the mind because it turns abstract thoughts into communication that, that, that is then diffuses ideas. Right, and it's those ideas when you combine with political power and capital and resources that ends up being the built environment that we live in. So a thought turns in, you know, communicated through the hand, through the pencil, onto paper, through the social channels, then attracts the money and the power that ends up being a bridge, right? And ends up being a skyscraper that ends up being a political party and so on. And so from that perspective, it begs the question: whose ideas are we then? propagating and perpetuating, right? And this is where I think money with, so with capital, with ideas in the built environment is something really specific. And so the psychedelic space, sometimes we are very guilty of being inward looking. We have to accept that we are part of a much larger macro forces. In my mind, the three critical existential problems in this world today are climate change, polarization, inequality. And all those have aspects of culture and mental health built in them that is either amplified by those problems or further amplify in, in turn these issues. And so psychedelics is not, again, a magic pill. It's a tool. So let's talk about how these tools get to people, who gets to build these tools, what kind of problems are we going to address, and that all, all those things are, again, a subset of the mindsets and the, f and, and the models that we propagate, which ultimately comes back to which founders you know, get funded. If you diversify the set of solutions and diversify the founders that are in the space that are get access to capital, we now have a better chance, a higher probability of looking at a much more broader set of solutions as opposed to very little. 
it'll be absolutely tragic if psychedelics, you know, which had been around for eons. This is not new. This is not the renaissance as we like to frame it. But I think combined with modern science and uh, modern tools, we have a different set of solutions. It'd be absolutely ironic if it just ends up creating a further inequality, but this time on the level of in cognitive stratification. You know, those not only are you poor by body, but you're poor by mind and you're further remain that way. Wonderful answer. So insightful. I can tell that you spend a lot of time thinking about this, as I do as well. And part of what I understand shapes some of your macro perspectives and talking about macro forces is that you yourself hail from a background where you were born in Bangladesh and then spent a majority of your young life in Saudi Arabia, which is something we have in common is that I've also lived over there. I've traveled extensively and I grew up hosting exchange students. So that was something that really viscerally shaped my thinking about the world. You know, when you're 10 years old and you have a student from who was born in the former Soviet Union and they're living with you and they're telling you about their experiences. And then you have a student from Ghana who's telling you about, you know, growing up in boarding school where they were actually whipped by the upperclassmen and they've got scars on their back. This kind of globalized thinking really opens you up to the possibility that, you know, being completely honed in on one perspective or one angle of the world is is not the full story, right? And I think that a lot of us grow up thinking that we have the answers, we have the full story. And in some ways, psychedelics can amplify this, right? Where we think, oh, I'm right because I was born into this lineage and like I know how the world works. And then you take a psychedelic and you say, well, of course, I'm going to, you know, to a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I think that this conversation about diversity, uh, you know, it's more than just a tokenized talking point. It's something that actually is going to be extremely, extremely beneficial to the broader planetary collective. And I know that there are a number of goals on the agenda with the United Nations and with these various, you know, international organizations to try to create more equity and to try to create a, a more balanced world, you know, where we have uh, more meaningful solutions to some of these extremely pressing social and environmental issues that you just mentioned. So let's dive into your background uh, coming from the global south, right? And how that's shaped some of your perspectives now living in Toronto and being an integral part of this rapidly developing psychedelic scene. Thanks, Jess. I really appreciate that question. It means a lot to me personally because, you know, and we do have this connection. And I think like just reflecting on the satire that you do, and of course, you're, you're, you're not just that. You started with a podcast, but sort of evolved into that. I think satire is it's so important. I think having a global awareness is super important. Of course, we all have our biases and our blind spots, and that's okay. That's what makes us human. But to know that you could be wrong is super important. That to know that you know there's other perspectives to keep in mind. For me, you know, I grew up in in, in Bangladesh to a relatively uh, a poor. I won't say poor, but it's sort of like we struggle with money our entire lives. And my father's generation came from a very poor agrarian society. You know, Bangladesh pre-1971, we were a product of the uh, British colony that was the uh, Indian subcontinent. India and Pakistan split up. And then as the fucking British do, they sort of arbitrarily drew lines and then said that, hey, even though Bangladesh and Pakistan are not connected geographically. You're all, all like majority Muslims, so why don't we put you in the same country, split in the middle by India, and, and let's see how things play out. Of course, set us up for a violent revolution in '71, and my father was a guerrilla fighter in that. And I, you know, and, and I, I was born in Bangladesh, but when I was two, we moved to Saudi Arabia um, when my father was a migrant worker, and you know, my father very early on managed to escape poverty and sort of like he had to leave because he had to support a large family and he's a man of the world in, in his own right and has done incredible things 
but I in Saudi Arabia, and I was I've, I don't know about you, but I I grew up, and I think we talked about this the first time we connected. I am still twenty years after I left, extremely conflicted about that place. Because on one hand, the most beautiful beaches, like the Red Sea, you know, the the warm ocean air, it's just you know brings me back. It's such an immense, powerful place, and the food, the people—it's a melting pot of all cultures in its own way. Yet the social inequality, the xenophobia, and the classism that I've experienced there is—it stayed with me, and I've seen the injustice. You know, trucking in migrant workers by day, the Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans who's gonna, who are going to build your buildings, the uh, the Indonesian maids, the Filipino nurses. And then by night, they get all shipped out, so you don't see the poor people who build your infrastructure. So, like, it's literally built by indentured servi- uh, servants, I think. You know, and I'm not going to say everybody's that way, but to see this day in and day out, and my father sort of, like, it was able to move up the ranks. And ironically, you know, when I talk about diversity, I don't often talk about color. I talk about class a lot. Because I think the most p- more pernicious part of inequality is not color. It is class. Class has always existed. Color came 400 years ago as a way of thinking. And so, you know, even for my podcast, My Under Trip Report, I don't talk about diversity and equity is really important, but let's talk about class as well. Because you could have people who look a certain way, but then after a particular class structure or a class ceiling, everybody looks, smelled, and does the same fucking thing. So for me, you know, very early on, having a sense of, you know, class, having a sense of, you know, justice was really important. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say, I, I, you know, I'm perfect by no fucking means whatsoever. But I am aware and I like, I, I would love to remain aware and I do my part. I can only, all I can do is do my best. And that's one of the, one of the ways I do that is by talking about it very openly without pointing fingers. It is something that we are all subject to day in, day out, because systems are built this way. They're built to maintain power, and they're built to maintain, you know, through power comes inequality, right? So, you know, you you might be very aware, but the food you eat, the shirt you wear, all of them have systems of disempowerment and slavery built into them. Yeah, it sounds almost like a paraphrase from a Naomi Klein book, if you've ever read No Logo or any of her work. And I believe she's also based in Toronto. But I went to school in San Francisco, as I often talk about on the podcast, because I'm increasingly realized how much that period of my life, in addition to my time living in Saudi Arabia, shaped the way I think. Because San Francisco, right, has a legacy of social justice and activism. And I went to a Jesuit school, University of San Francisco, which is a very privileged, quite classist place but I will give them a lot of credit for introducing a lot of these conversations, for you know exposing us to a lot of these more global ways of thinking. And uh, I've stayed in touch with a lot of my classmates who came from families in Vietnam and in Egypt and in Bangladesh, Singapore, etc. And I hope that everyone has a chance to encounter more globalized ways of thinking and just realizing that we live in an era that's rapidly accelerating where all of these conversations, conflicts, classism, they're all really coming to a boil right now. And I think we're seeing the result of that with a lot of the current geopolitical tensions. And that, you know, that obviously translates and maps itself into the psychedelic space because psychedelics are so intersectional, right? And that's something that I've really gravitated towards is this feeling of when we start having conversations about psychedelics, it's not just necessarily about the molecules or the science. There's so much more that's tied into it about questions of how we structure society, how we value people, 
you know, how we move forward collectively together, or as you previously mentioned, is the quote, psychedelic renaissance really just a reinforcement and a reinforcing of the status quo, which is something that a lot of people are actively seeking to avoid. So let's dovetail from that real quick and and tap into how you personally got exposed to psychedelics, because that's not something, you know, that, you know, most teenagers or young people living in Saudi Arabia are, are necessarily going to have an opportunity to do. So I just love to hear about how did you first get exposed or introduced to psychedelics? And was it an immediately beneficial relationship for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a good question. I mean, obviously, doing psychedelics or anything, you know, in Saudi Arabia is out of the question. I think within the wild compounds and the enclaves in Saudi where, you know, Westerners and wealthy people are allowed to do whatever the hell they want. Outside that, at least at that time, was it was out of the question. I was always open-minded. Like, for me, like, I grew up with very censored media at that time. Saudi Arabia now is a very different place from, like, you know, I was there from, oh boy, like, 86 all the way to 2000. So it was a very different place. All media was censored. I got computers in, in, in 98 and then you know I used to have a hacked radio that I would get a satellite transmission from like the US base in Jeddah which was the port city that's how I got exposed to western music but the first time I tried psychedelics was actually after I moved to Toronto first year university and the first time I ate mushrooms and it was very recreational it was a friend we had tea I had no idea what to expect I just knew that it makes you laugh and it was the first time where I had this complete out-of-body experience watching TV, and I saw myself in the TV watching myself. It was a very meta sort of experience. But, you know, it, it, it was cool, but it wasn't like, you know, healing in any, you know, any way. But I think in 2016, or sorry, 17, was when I first had a very profound psychedelic experience. Because, and I, I broke up with my long-term partner at the time, it was the first time in my entire life where I had stopped full stop, where I was like, I'm not sure why I can't find joy, why I can't be happy. I felt this neurotic drive to just keep going. And I recognized that the immigrant ethos is, you know, work hard, but if you're happy, you're not working hard enough. There was no reason for pause. And every time I say that now out loud to any of my immigrant friends, no matter where they come from, they, they sort of laugh because it's like it does capture that experience. And it was from 2016 onwards that I had some number of profound experiences. I don't do psychedelics recreationally, although I think that is a very important part of this entire movement to have a right to mold your consciousness however you deem fit if it doesn't harm anybody else. With access though comes education and responsibility so the question is how do you do it responsibly and in a in a thoughtful way but it was the my experience with 5meo in 2018 that rocked my entire existence it wasn't the only thing but paired with thoughtful day-to-day -day integration with having a very loving community my friends and family who's been supportive throughout my last few years without whom i don't think i would be able to do anything really uh, I, I grant them that sort of uh, but that's how I sort of came across it. And then, of course, watching the underground in Toronto sort of grow up and being very part of that. And then uh, the last two years watching an industry, so to speak, I, I say quotation marks because it's not really an industry yet, but it is. there are signs of it. Uh, and there's lots of things we need to do still. 
Um, that's how it started. Sure. Yes. I, I think for a lot of people, they have this sense of you encounter mushrooms or you have an experience and then it's kind of a, a recreational setting. Right. And then later on, especially in the last few years, so much literature, so many reports, minority trip reports, right, have emerged about the utterly profound potential of these tools as far as shaping the way we think about ourselves, culture, Etc. And I'm curious, does your underlying sort of exposure to religion, right, and having lived in the Middle East and having come from the global south, that's something that is such a huge part of classism, I think, right? And I grew up in a heavily Christianized environment, and my family comes from this perspective of you, you be an active member of the church, you sort of stay in line, you kind of do what you're told, and this is a good life. And in a lot of ways, I think that's beautiful. Like, I'm not going to throw out religion and say, like, everything about it is bad, right? I think that there's value to being part of a community. But I'm just curious, I'm kind of riffing here, I'm curious if your exposure to religion, and in some cases, fanaticism, has maybe worked its way into some of the ways that you think about psychedelics. Because I've noticed that as being sort of a a line that some people gravitate towards one side or the other. Either they're very religious and spiritual, and henceforth, I think a psychedelic experience is going to amplify that. Or there's people coming from a very agnostic, atheistic perspective who maybe don't really believe necessarily in all you know the, the spirituality angle of it. So would just love to riff a little bit about where you think the role of religion and spirituality, uh, where does that fit into this psychedelic ecosystem that's developed? It's a great question, Dennis. I really appreciate that question, actually, because I think it's so important to talk about spirituality and religion from from the perspective of upbringing. I think spirituality, the word's been kind of like, it's become meaningless because as with everything, you know, every few years we have to reinvent words so we can keep talking about the real thing and not what's been consumerized and in the public consciousness. I grew up Muslim, and I to this day I call myself Muslim, but there was a very big, you know, journey in the middle, as you can imagine. My parents are devout practicing Muslims, but they not for a single day told me what to believe in. They were always like, you know, I read the Quran twice as like it's part of our cultural practice to recite the Quran. But my parents were always like, learn what it says. You're reading it in Arabic, but l- try to learn what it means and come out, come at it at your own, you know, in your own way. Don't be brainwashed. Always ask questions. And so my parents always being despite being devout, it was never dogmatic. And then, of course, growing up in Saudi Arabia, seeing how religion was completely twisted and bastardized and to used to oppress and further justify you know, the level of suppression. I, I was vehemently anti-religion, vehemently anti-religion. You know, uh, my, actual na- my full name, legal name is Hussein Siraj. Even though in my culture, you usually get two names. You get the legal name and you get the nickname that your friends and family uh, call you. It's a pet name. Rad is my pet name. But for a long time, I refused to call myself Hussein Siraj. And of course, you know, I vividly remember 9-11. Of course, having a Muslim name, a name like Hussein at that time was not cool. You know, and so there's I definitely felt shame. I definitely, and of course, I felt angry at my own religion. But, you know, I've sort of come back around to this, not to religion, but understanding what role spirituality plays and how important faith is. You know, one of my guests, Javed Jah, who's an artist in Toronto, he's Ismaili, and he talks about Islamic mysticism. And it was the first time when I met him, was like I reframed my entire relationship to Islam in a way that he, and he really boils it down to this thing. All spirituality and faith comes down to this one central question. How do you reconcile uncertainty and the fact that you're going to die one day? 
to detach yourself to the material things. That is all spirituality and faith does. Religion is this fucking bastardization and sort of like political framework you put on top of that to take advantage of people's susceptibility to a natural inclination to, to, to faith, to look, at, you know, to look at the sky. And then, of course, you know, this, this sort of like also hyper-rationalist atheist bullshit is equally dogmatic to say that a farmer in India who looks up at the sky, his crops have been demolished by flood, looks up to the sky, hands out and goes like, God, give me a way to feed my family tomorrow. How the fuck can that be wrong? So I really try to bifurcate and say spirituality and faith is very different from religion. In my mind, still, fuck organized religion to this day. But, I, I mean, I, of course, if you believe in that, I will never disrespect you. I will always try to be respectful. And if I'm disrespectful, please tell me that I'm being disrespectful. I, I don't want to. I, I don't, it's a very personal, but the thing is, it's a personal relationship to God. However, whatever channel you find. Wonderful answer. Thank you for indulging me on the heavy hitting questions. I almost feel like it's my duty to kind of add some more depth and hit the harder topics a little bit on this podcast because I do so much lighthearted satire work, which I want to dive into next. So thank you for that. And I couldn't agree more. And that's partially for me. What shaped a lot of my adulthood and my young adulthood was this personal relationship with mushrooms. And from my very first experiences, I felt this sense of a connection to a force there that it was just me and that force. And I think that was an important place to come from because I've noticed, you know, going to school there in San Francisco, I saw a lot of a lot of recreational psychedelic use. And again, there, I don't believe in hierarchies of set and setting. I think that they're all valuable experiences. But when I decided to dive more into that personal relationship, I feel it's like, you know, that's where the more difficult, intense experiences would come from. And that, I think, has really given me an upper hand as far as navigating other issues in my life because you really give yourself, you carve out that time to listen to yourself without the distractions. And I realized, like, we live in a society full of distractions. It's so easy to just constantly get distracted, especially with social media, right? So I think a big part of my work and what I'm trying to do is trying to leverage social media to talk about some of these deeper subjects too in a meaningful way and to explore them. So thank you for indulging me on that. Let's talk about satire for a minute because the actual, the first time that you came on my radar, I believe is when I had pitched this idea out to the collective of doing a psychedelic satire festival, which I'm still very interested in executing on and doing. You reached out to me and said, we should do this and we should make this happen. And I still think we should make it happen. But what is it about this idea of satire and comedy and levity specifically in the psychedelic space that is appealing to you and where can we lean into it? You know, how can we use satire as a tool to address some of these more controversial and difficult topics, which seem to be bombarding the community and the world at large on a daily basis, right? Is this really tense, really frustrating situation? And, uh, you know, what does satire mean to you and how can we, how can we integrate it into the psychedelic movement in a meaningful capacity? It's a great question. And, and again, I commend you greatly, Dennis, for, a, putting that idea out, because I think every idea is a beacon, right? Uh, and it encourages people to, so your idea pulled me in, so I'm really, really grateful for that. That's awesome. What is the role of comedy and satire? Well, at the end of the day, satire and comedy is not new. It's been used for, you know, as long as human beings exist and a complex culture has existed, there's an aspect of satire and comedy, right? I think there's a couple of things here. One is like, if you think about the court jester and what role they played, it was the only person in court that could essentially tell the king to go fuck himself 
and he would not be executed. The king would just laugh. <laughs> so there's that aspect of uh, comedy and satire. But I think what we need is, is, so I have this thing tattooed on my arm. It really touched me, and it's to the point that I, I, I it's, a, it's a tattooed on my arm, and it's a reminder. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And in between these two banks runs the river that is my life. And, you know, this, this thing between, like, knowing that you're, you're very powerful and knowing that you're absolutely insignificant and that life is a joke. And maybe sometimes you'll actually never understand the entire gravity of the situation. This sort of humility, and we need humility in this space, I think. There's so much exuberance. And, you know, and you f of course, you, you pair that with consumerism and Instagram, influencer culture, and the next thing you know, this very virulent form of, you know, a virulent force that is probably is going to be super damaging because there's a lot of people who are generally looking for help, you know, and we all started our you know journey that way, but there's this sort of like psychedelics paired with this narcissistic disorder that's gone around the world, and of course with you know if you pair that with uh, with social media and now you have this sort of god complex that is immonetizable, right? And satire is the only thing there which, like, you know, without pointing fingers, you can allow someone to laugh at themselves and go like, oh, hold on, I actually don't know. Why am I laughing? Oh, yeah, I kind of do that. Yeah, it's hilarious, but also, why do I really do this thing? You know, we have to be apolitical in the sense that polarization is quite damaging, and I think the biggest danger to our movement is the fragmentation. Everybody deciding and put planting a flag in the ground and going like, this is what I'm going to do, this is what it is, this is the truth. And if you're not with me or against me, you're the problem. And that applies to everybody, not just corporations, not just VCs, but not-for-profits, underground practitioners, everybody. Ideology and dogma is what's going to hurt the most. And this is where satire can accept both the truth, offer, a, offer an alternative, but also have fucking fun doing it. That's why I think it's so important. I couldn't agree more. And it was one of those accidentally on purpose things that I say when people say, how did you get into doing this? It's like, I just made a video one day that was totally top of mind, which expressed how I felt. And apparently a lot of other people felt the same way. And there's no shortage of seriousness in our world. There's no shortage of crises in our world. Those things are not going to go away. So can we counterbalance them with a little bit of levity and kind of walk it back a step and say, hey, we're a bunch of kind of stoned monkeys floating through the galaxy on a rock, you know, and we're, we're never going to fully understand what's going on. So that's one of the optics that I approach the psychedelic space from as I'm not an authority on very much, but I am willing to make a public fool of myself and to read a lot, to listen a lot and to try to, you know, interject some of these more serious talking points and more moral talking points that come up and and coat them in a way or embed them in a way where maybe they're more accessible and relatable. And sometimes I call it like, it's like when you want to give your dog some medicine and you need to put it in a treat, right? And you're like, here's your, here's your medicine, but it's inside of a treat. I think that's what satire is. It's a Trojan horse where you can talk about very real, very pressing issues, but they're not so threatening because if somebody sees you know, these conversations coming, they're going to have a, a trigger reaction to a lot of these conversations. But like satire, I think, is a way of tricking people into engaging it and approaching it from a lens that they're kind of caught off guard with. And maybe it's that 
that's going to enable some more understanding. And I know one of the quotes, one of my guiding principles is from Salvador Dali. It's that confusion is the best form of communication. And I think I developed that from having traveled a lot and from, you know, a lot of the satire I'm doing has a lot of body language and antics people have mentioned. I think that comes from communicating a lot across cultures where you don't share a language with people, but you realize like you can you can create an understanding with them through body language a lot of the time, right? And like even, you know, historically when different tribes were meeting, it would be a lot of body language or a gift because you don't have the same language. So I think that that can't be overemphasized is that we need to just walk it back a step sometimes and realize that we're all in this together, whether we know it or not, and that there are ways of communicating that are beyond just the simple, I speak your language, you speak my language. So that's one of the thoughts I wanted to offer. Now, as we round out the podcast, let's dive into talking about what you're currently involved with, because you've got your fingers in a number of different pots, as previously mentioned. So I want to hear about the Minority Trip podcast, why that's such an important podcast. It's kind of obvious, but I want to hear your take on it. And also, what is the Mission Club? Because I still don't actually know. So please use this time to just you know unabashedly promote yourself and talk about what you're working on. Well, thanks, Dennis. I appreciate that. Okay, so the Minority Trip Report is a podcast for underrepresented views in psychedelics, mental health, and consciousness. And I am very cognizant and very clear about, you know, and deliberate about using the word underrepresented versus diverse or equity and, you know, and, and sort of justice, things like that. Because A, I'm not an equity expert. You know, I will be the first one to say that. I think people have dedicated their lives rightfully to really thinking through it very carefully about what words to use and how what frameworks to use. I am not that. So, you know, I initially, thought I would make a BIPOC podcast, but again, I'm not the expert. But I do think underrepresented views are really important because, and that could come from anywhere. I want you know, I'm very deliberate also not making it about color because when you make it about color, you, f you, you actually lose out the deeper aspect of the human experience. And I'm not saying color is not important. Color is one part of that is what I'm saying. You know, I want to talk about class. I want to talk about all the other things. And we'll see how the far the podcast goes, but I think there was a very big gap in and narratives, and I think ultimately psychedelics are powerful paired with therapy or therapeutic settings because it actually allows you to investigate and reconcile the autobiographical narrative. And in that, pr and, and uh, from, and, but the thing is, like, there's very limited set of autobiographical uh, autobiographical narratives that are in this space right now. So how do you broaden that? Not just from patients. I mean, practitioners, scientists, artists who are from you know who've grown up born somewhere grown up somewhere in the world and came to this work accidentally or otherwise there's so much so i want to broaden the set of lived experiences in this space and what stories get told because ultimately that also acts as a beacon we need more people in this space you cannot have an ecosystem you know if you don't mobilize people and different kinds of people from around the world so that's number one mission club is the other side of the equation which is that broadening the uh, capital pool for early stage ventures and founders in this space. Capital, you know, if you think about it, all VCs have always been marketing companies, right? In the sense that, you know, VC venture capital works on the, uh, on the function that you have a set of um, experts or people who have the brand or the knowledge or the ability to mobilize capital and the network who you entrust your money with and they act and make investment decisions on your behalf. And that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is that these networks have remained very, very closed for a long time. And so there's a larger conversation of how do we broaden the network, how do we break on these networks, how do we mobilize more people into these networks, 
how do we connect people better, but also in psychedelics is even more important because we're talking about uh, addressing existential problems. So we have to talk about broader solutions and broader solutions coming from more diverse founders. And so what Mission Club does, we're an education platform that is mobilizing angel investors who actually invest the earliest on after your friends and family into a startup. We're inviting and broadening this, br the community of angel investors, which then ultimately benefits everybody, not just diverse founders, but it benefits everyone because those investors hopefully will participate with not just their capital, but with their passion, conviction, network, connection, and they'll be here to participate and learn and build with the rest of the community. We are taking an ecosystem approach. So, and this is not to replace VC, that is not to replace anyone else. If we connect the dots earlier on, that VC's institutional capital can come on later on and fill a, a different need. So it's just building a better, more vibrant, uh, more connected ecosystem, right? Um, and of course, uh, some people will say, well, this is kind of naive, you don't understand it, but hey, let me just remind you, venture capital back in the day in 1957 when Arthur Rock tried to fund these eight nerds uh, who sort of escaped their labs and they're like, you know, and they're sort of monstrous sort of PhD supervisor. Arthur Rock went to them and said, okay, I'm gonna fund you guys. That company became Fairchild Semiconductors. That company rolled into Intel and HP ultimately. You know, at that time, there was no such thing as venture capital. It was called adventure capital because it was considered to be this reckless, naive form of capital and things like that. So it's, VC has now been matured quite a bit, but the thing is we still need more people to participate earlier on. But the core message is with education comes empowerment. It is still risky and there's many ways to participate. If you did want to participate as an investor and you have the risk tolerance, we would help you, help mobilize you and onboard you into this community. And we'll work with, you know, our, our, our partner is Microdose uh, Media, which is the most prominent and largest media company in this, in this space, organizer of Microdose Media. We've created what we call Deal Board, that is the angelus of psychedelics. That is once you've learned and you have a, 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 you know, enough awareness about the psychedelic space, we will create opportunities for you to invest in deals and, and startups and founders that we've vetted. So we're connecting the loop. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that. And I just want to say that this conversation right here is why I started the podcast and that I've done everything in my power to try to curate conversations targeted towards a highly educated audience. Because I think that, as you mentioned, education is so important. And there are so many brilliant thinkers from all over the world who think in different ways that are going to be gravitating towards the space and already have. And whether or not we recognize their brilliance, that's more upon us understanding that there are different methods of being brilliant, right? Just because you're a programmer or you have a JD or whatever doesn't mean you're necessarily more brilliant than someone who's living in a slum in Mumbai. And that's always been my feeling about the way that we should approach things. So thank you for the critical work that you're doing. It's been a pleasure hosting you today. Rod Siraj of Minority Trip Report and Mission Club. Everybody tap in with him. All the info will be linked to the episode. Thank you for stopping by the Micropreneur Podcast. This has been an honor. Thanks so much, Dennis. I'm really grateful to be here. And again, kudos to all the work you're doing. I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness that you bring into this space. And that is a wrap. Thank you for sticking around to the bitter end. It's very sweet of you to commit so thoroughly. Don't be a stranger. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please consider checking out the substantial backlog while you're at it. You can reach out to me via email, mycopreneur at gmail.com. 
or hit me on any of the numerous social platforms that I'm currently active on. At Micopreneur Podcast is the handle on Instagram and Twitter. Thank you all very much for sticking around. Have a wonderful day. I'll see you back here next week on the Micopreneur Podcast.